Well, good morning. Okay, we're going for it. Here we go. Well, good morning, West Shore Campus. It's so great to be with you today. You know, as we were parking, our youngest daughter, Indiana, was like, where are we? Because we usually go downtown. And uh, she said, where are we, Dada? And I said, we are at West Shore Campus. And then she went like this. West Shore Campus! I'm so excited! And I actually, you know, the Spirit of God is moving here. And that's why I want to say that. I really sense this expectation, this excitement from my three-year-old daughter is an extension of what's happening in the heavenly realm. God is imparting something here that's so powerful that excitement just bursts out of you. So invite a friend. This is an exciting place. Thank you, God, for West Shore. It is the best shore, right? Come on. I'm honored to be with you here today, honored to be here on behalf of our lead pastors, Andy and Lisa, and thank you for our pastors, Laura and James. Thank you so much for having me here today. And yes, we did not start out as great friends, Laura and I, but the Lord knew, and uh, ask us about it. There's a pretty funny story behind how we became friends, and uh, just thankful for the Lord uh, for Laura and James and their ministry among us. Can we just give them a round, too? We love them. Thank you so much. Can you believe I actually grew up in the West Shore? Yeah, I know, I know. I don't tell anyone that. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> I grew up on Percy Place. I don't know if anyone knows where that is. It's just off Millstream. And, and I went to Savory Elementary School just around the corner. And there's like a big mountain there. And I love that school so much. I have so many fond memories. And I used to walk those train tracks to get to school every day when that was still okay. You know, and they let kids walk to school on their own. That was me. <laughs> And many years ago, I drove by looking for our place on Percy Place, and it was gone, totally gone. It's just several townhomes now, and that's rest in peace, my old home. It's okay. But even now, the West Shore continues to expand, and, and through even to like Royal Bay and new places that I don't even know what they're called anymore, right? Like neighborhoods are popping up everywhere here. And since I was a small boy, this, this community has been on a a path of growth, and, and it's been steady, and you couldn't stop it if you wanted to, right? Like, this getting big out here, we love it. Ever since Costco came in, that was kind of the turning point, right? Like, everyone wants to be near a Costco. I'll see you after church there if you're going, right? <laughs> Say hi to me. Oh, I'm serious. I'll be there, okay? <laughs> and I, I realized, as I was thinking about this, as I was coming out here, I realized that for over 2,000 years, a similar dynamic has been happening with the church, with Jesus' people. Through his Holy Spirit, he has continued to build and solidify his church. It's unstoppable. It never quits. And as our title of our series declares, we are the church. Did you know that you and me, we are the church? And Jesus is building us unstoppably and the gates of hell will not prevail over his church. So I'm excited to be here. I want to dig into one of Jesus' followers, Peter, today, and really talk about this church idea one more time in the last of our series here. And if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. And this is a great time to pull out your phone if you have the Bible app, Matthew 16, 13 to 18. 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Verse 15, but what about you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, the same one we've been singing to today. Verse 17, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I'll tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Lord Jesus, we commit this day to you. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your your disciple, Peter, who started the church. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that nothing can stop your activity among the church, through the church, for the church, and for your world. Speak through me today, Holy Spirit. Have your way. Would you open our hearts and minds to receive what you are speaking today? You're so good, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Now, I want to take us through this chapter a little bit in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and I haven't had the the privilege of being there. If you want to talk about Caesarea Philippi, talk to Pastor Andy. He's been there. I want to take a few moments to unpack this region because it's important to the context of the passage that we're studying today, okay? The location Where they are in this story, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, is so important. Caesarea Philippi was an administrative city founded by none other than Herod's son. This is the same Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus, remember, in the Christmas story. This is an ancient ancient Syria where they worshipped Baal, okay? In the Old Testament, they worshipped one of the other gods. And here in Caesarea Philippi, the Greeks built a temple to the god Pan, And this is the god of the wild, of shepherds and that sort of thing. And in this very same region, there was also a Roman temple that was dedicated to Caesar. They believed Caesar was a god. And even the Israelites regarded this land as a source of provision. This is where the headwaters started of of the river there. And all of this backdrop in this place of worship, in this place where they honored many gods, Jesus is asking his disciples, who am I? Who is Jesus among the gods of this world, is what he's asking. And Jesus asks his disciples two different questions in this passage. And the first question in verse 13 is, who do people say the Son of Man is? And he's referring to himself. The question explores others. What are people saying about Jesus? Verse 14, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This is their response. It seems like the disciples really had no trouble answering this question. John the Baptist was the most recent influencer around them, right? And he turned martyr for the faith. He was killed for what he believed, starting the way or preparing the way for Jesus Christ. Elijah was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament and forerunner for the Messiah. And Jeremiah was regarded as the one who Jesus, or they thought, the Jews thought, that he would bring the glory of God back. Jesus' second question turns the disciples' minds inwards. It takes them 
to question their own experience and their relationship with Jesus. He asked them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And I can only imagine how the group reacted to this question. It was like a math teacher called on one of them, right? It's like, hey, can you come and answer this algebra question? They're like, ooh, <laughs> you know? It caused them to come inwards, but what about you? It was a deeply personal question. And notice in verse 14, it says, they replied. In verse 16, it says, Simon Peter answered. So not everyone spoke up. This was just Simon Peter declaring. He answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And look at Jesus' response to this answer. He says, you are blessed. Whew, he made it. Verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. See, you notice there was no rebuke. Sometimes when the disciples spoke up, there was the correction that, was that took place right away. Jesus didn't rephrase his words or bring correction. There was just a complete acceptance of Peter's words. Peter's statement is the rock the church is built on. It's the basis of what we followers of Jesus hold on to today. Jesus is the Messiah. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Come on. He is God's son. Come to this earth to save us from the curse of sin and death. We sang about that today. We celebrated communion about that today. This is the cornerstone of our faith. And Jesus said so. Verse 18, and I'll tell you that you are Peter. Notice he gave him a new name there. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. See, the Christian church of today is still built on Peter's confession. Peter actually expands this confession later on after Jesus, his death and resurrection. Peter was defending the faith after he was arrested in Acts chapter 4, you can go there later and check it out yourself. He's talking to a bunch of religious leaders, and he says this about his confession of faith. Acts 4.11. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. Verse 12, and this is really important. This is Peter's confession expanded. The same one he makes with Jesus, that he is the Son of Man, the Messiah. He says... Salvation is found in no one else. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And I just want to stop here and reiterate Peter's confession. There is only one way to salvation, my friends. And that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ, the king above all kings. And if you haven't started this relationship yet, I encourage you, do that today. Because your money can't save you. Relationships, your wife, your spouse, your, your husband can't save you. Your job can't save you. Awards can't save you. Recognition won't save you. Having, you know, built up 1.5 million in RSPs before you retire, that cannot save you. Colonizing Mars is not going to save us. Once we get there, we'll have the same need for salvation. We can't run away from our problems. There's only one name by which we must be saved, and it's Jesus Christ. 
When Peter made this initial confession in Matthew 16, it was in a place of worship to many gods. As I said, polytheism was the standard practice there. And Peter's statement actually confronts polytheism and those who worship many gods. His confession is definitive. It's exclusive. It narrows down worship to Jesus and Jesus alone. This would have been rejected by the culture of the people living in Caesarea Philippi. And isn't it like that today? Our confession of Jesus, our commitment to being his church, is actually countercultural. We are monotheistic as a church. We believe in one God. We worship one God, revealed in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just like Peter in Acts 4, we are called to challenge our cultural notions and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the only way to the Father. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And besides him, there is no other God. But it's not just our monotheism, but it's also our morality, our Christian ethic that is countercultural. How we live is different. How the church lives is different. And sometimes even our pursuit of purity, our holiness, is seen as or viewed as prudishness, right? Our Christian ethic is often viewed as passe, and our faith is actually seen almost as evidence of old-fashionism or an, or an era gone by, right? But however, the church is also proof positive. The jury has reached a verdict that Jesus said he would build his church, and he didn't lie. It's still here. Think about it this way. If you go to that ancient, bustling northern city of Caesarea Philippi in Israel today, you'll find it silent. Nowhere in the world do they worship Caesar anymore. And a minute amount of people in the world would claim to worship the ancient Greek god Pan. But 2,000 years later, all over the known world, almost a billion people worship Jesus Christ today. And we're part of that, my friends. Why? Because Jesus builds his church. And the gates of hell cannot prevail. They won't beat it. They can't stop it. Eternal pressures can't stop the church. Being excluded from culture or being unpopular amongst our pervasive culture can't stop Jesus from what he's doing. Persecution never stopped the church. I think of the harsh persecution of Christians in the Muslim and communist worlds in Iran or in China right now. The church can't be stopped. Underground churches exist today and they are thriving one of our global workers in a place we can't talk about, thousands of people are accepting Jesus in a Muslim country on a daily basis. The church can't be stopped, my friends. Poverty can't stop the church. We think of Africa and Latin America. The church is alive and thriving in those places. And even as I visited one of the poorest regions in Thailand, the church was there. Feeding the hungry being the comfort for the hurting and the broken and clothing them and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. I just got an update from our missionary in Thailand this morning. They had church yesterday there because they're ahead of us. And they baptized six people in the jungle church on the border of Myanmar where the gospel is not allowed. 
God's church is thriving. People are being baptized. They are confessing Jesus Christ as Lord for their whole life. They're making their faith public in a very dangerous region. Thank you, Lord. The church is unstoppable. And what we found through history is that it isn't external pressures that really bring down the church. It's internal decisions that start to break away and erode the unity of the church. A couple summers ago, we woke up and we saw this steady stream of ants coming from outside into our place, into our kitchen. They were uh, eating up some syrup that I, probably our daughters left in there. <laughs> and we traced their path and tried to find their colony, and we tried so many things to get rid of these ants. And we soon realized that you could take this mixture of like borax and sugar and water and mix it into this paste. And we started placing these on little cardboard cutouts like all around our kitchen. And they start to come and surround these little pools of borax and eat all this borax up. And in a couple days, we just realized that they were all gone, you know. The ants found this and took the poison and introduced it into their colony. They brought it back home. And they created this internal pressure, and they just all dissolved, basically. They're gone. And the same thing happens in the church. Internal pressures break our unity and start to harm the local church. We intake things we shouldn't intake. And we sin when we shouldn't. And we start to spread that around the people in our circles. And it starts to erode our unity as a church. My prayer today is that I want to share with you three warnings that I have for the church. And my prayer today is that these will help us to not bring disgrace to the church, but to help us to be the rock that, that, that we're built on, that we can still be like Peter and build his church. All right, so here's the first warning. If you're taking notes, here's the first warning. The church becomes ineffective when we choose our wisdom rather than his spirit. The church becomes ineffective when we choose our wisdom rather than his spirit. We've been establishing in many messages in the past, we say this all the time, you and me are the church. It's not just a building. It's not a place we go to. We are the church. Amen? Amen. We are smart. You're all smart here, I know. But we can't only rely on our wisdom, our smarts, to reach the world around us. And look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3 to 5. I came to you, this is him talking to the Corinthian church, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Who wants a weak pastor? You do. You do. And I'll explain why. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We need God's power more than you need smarts, more than you need your brain. You need his power. The church needs his power. And it's easy to assume that our efforts are what God will use to make move, but it's actually his power. Paul says, I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on wisdom, but on his power. And, and you know what? My words today on their own don't carry the power to change your life. They don't. But God's Spirit who moves your heart can transform you from the inside out today. Today, today. Reach out to him. 
you know, our lead pastors, Andy and Lisa, and our pastors, Laura and James, they're brilliant leaders. They're intelligent. They're determined. They're called people. And I know you would all agree with this. But without the Spirit of God, they would be ineffective and irrelevant. Luckily, that's not the case. (laughs) I can tell you that I've seen each one of them rely on the Spirit's power in their lives. They don't simply rely on their own wisdom. They know the Spirit of God is at work among his church, among Coastline Church. We need God's Spirit for every aspect of our lives. And it's by his Spirit the Holy Spirit, that we actually build his church. And right after Peter's confession in Acts chapter 4, there's, there's no other name, he says, which, by which we can be saved. Luke, the writer of Acts, he actually shares a negative example of faith found in the Christian community. And I want to take you there. If you're here on week one in the series, we talked about Acts chapter 2, verse 42, or 42 to 45, and how the community of believers were unified. I want to quickly go there with you, Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Lord, may we be able to say that about our church. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So this is the backdrop of the next account I want to share with you in Acts chapter 5. God is moving in a powerful way in the early church. This is the first church that ever popped up after the 3,000 were saved. And in Acts chapter 5, there's an account of a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Here we go. Verse, chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So people were selling their property, laying it at the apostles' feet. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Verse 3, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and you've kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings but to God. Verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Okay. Whew. I'm never going to lie again. That was a lie. I should die. Anyways. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Verse 6. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. And this is wild. Verse 7. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Verse 9, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is in the Bible, friends. This, is, this story is wild. This is after Jesus died, too. This is New Testament. This isn't like, oh, yeah, we're covered from the blood. You know, like this happened when Jesus was already gone. This is one of the most striking examples of trying to use knowledge and wisdom 
instead of following the leading of the Spirit in the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, they thought they could trick their way into favor with the church. Why did they do this? Why did they lie? Why did they conspire, as Peter said, to test the spirit of the Lord Jesus? And I find two reasons here. The first reason is they had the love of money. They loved money. They trusted in wealth more than God's provision and his plan. They knowingly held money back from God, even though they didn't have to. Nobody today knows your finances, but God does. He does. Do you know why? It's because not because just because he's all-knowing, but it's also because he is the owner of everything. He's the owner. All of your wealth is his. You're simply a manager, a steward of what he's given you. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And Ananias and Sapphira didn't understand that there's a greater cause for the church than just to be ahead financially. There's more for us, church. The second thing, the second reason they tested the Lord is because they loved praise. If you read Acts 4, the chapter just before this story, you'd see that all these believers were selling all their possessions and God was moving in such a strong way among them that even one man named Barnabas sold a field that he owned and gave the apostles the money. They desired the admiration and praise of the community of believers. Their self-interest was stronger than their confession of who Jesus was and is and what he'd done in their lives. I'm going to say it in a different way. Their problem was that they were just pretending to be Christians. They weren't true. The church is ineffective when we choose our wisdom rather than the Spirit's leading. They tested the Spirit, thinking that they could outsmart God. And this story today is not just to freak you out, okay, or to bring fear among us. Of course, you know, we don't want to test the Spirit. This example is actually to bring your attention to the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work within the church at all times. The Spirit is deeply concerned with our witness as a church. The Spirit is also here to bring guidance and direction to the church. Let's not exchange the Spirit's leading its direction and empowerment for just good ideas, business strategies, or life hacks. You can't life hack your way into being an effective member of the Christian community. You just can't. You know, I've had many people ask, you know, why our church seems to be growing. They ask me things like, why are so many people drawn to Coastline? Or when I talk about Kingdom Builders or the building project that we just undertook, they say, like, how did you raise so much money? Why do we seem to surge forward after COVID instead of crumbling? Come on, West Shore, you know best. We grew during COVID. These are all great questions, but there's only one answer that suffices. We did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. We didn't come with wise or persuasive words. We came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that faith wouldn't rest on our wisdom, but on his power. And in your life, are you being led by the Spirit or are you being led by smart ideas? John 14 says that the Holy Spirit is with us forever, accessible to you right now and forevermore. He is our advocate. He brings us comfort, counsel, peace. He even brings conviction to our hearts. That's the still small voice you hear in your head. Some prayers you can even say right now are, Spirit of God, would you check my motives? 
How can I grow as a follower of you? That's an amazing prayer you can pray today. Spirit, would you bring me comfort in this situation or circumstance? I need you. The Spirit is always with you. Or you could pray, Spirit, would you guide my steps forward and lead me? You know, I've been asking myself and young leaders recently this question, would you rather be smart or surrendered? Consider it with me. Would you rather be smart or surrendered? Ananias and Sapphira thought they were being smart. They certainly weren't surrendered to Jesus. You know, it's your choice today. You can be smart or surrendered to Jesus. The church becomes ineffective when we choose our wisdom rather than his spirit. So that's the first point, first warning I have for you today. The second warning that I have for you today is the church flounders when we determine that God's work is someone else's job. We flounder when we we determine that the, the work of the church or God's work is someone else's job. You know, it's not just my job as a pastor to complete all the work that God has for you or for Coastline Church. I'm sorry. I'm pretty amazing, but I just can't do it all. <laughs> Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. My job as a pastor is to equip people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ, that's the church, so that's you and me, may be built up. So that we can reach unity, maturity, and actually access the fullness of God that he has for us, that abundant life. And if you read in between the lines here, there's a role here for you. If you, you don't have to be an apostle, a prophet, evangelist, pastor, or teacher. You are being equipped for works of service. That's God's will for you. And you might be thinking, I have faith. I don't need to do works. In James chapter 2, it says, faith without deeds or works is dead. And what he's alluding to is that true faith in Jesus Christ motivates us to live differently. They're together. When we truly believe in Jesus, when we when our faith is real and vital, we want to obey him. We want to reach people. We want to want to do dishes. Oh no, that's just me and my wife. <laughs> we want to be equipped. By the power of the spirit within us, we are motivated to action, to reach the world who's dying. The spirit is equipping us to make that same confession that Peter made, that salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we may be saved. That's our confession today. And it isn't the time for us to ride the sidelines. We have the opportunity to give our all to Jesus every day. We have the ability to walk in the way of Jesus with our ethics, with our morality, with our allegiance to Jesus Christ in our lives. And the mission of the church is to really help you take a next step to do that. That's why we exist as a church, to reveal the life-giving message of Jesus so that you can take a next step, so that your neighbor can take a next step. We are here today to fulfill the call of Ephesians 4. And we don't just come to church to sing three nice songs and 
have a response at the end. We don't just come to see our friends that we don't see other than church. And we don't just come to church to fulfill this religious duty that we have. We come to be reminded of our calling to live the way of Jesus. We come to be equipped and built up for works of service so that we can transform the spiritual landscape of the West Shore and Victoria and Esquimalt, wherever we reside. We need to reach the world around us. That's why we exist or we shouldn't be meeting. This isn't a social club. It's a salvation club. Come on. I just made that up. That's not in my notes. We're all deeply in need of Jesus Christ. Each one of us. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's no one greater than you among us. See, the words that Jesus spoke to Peter also ring true for us today. You, Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church. My friends, Jesus is building his church. He's building his community on your shoulders. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. We let the church flounder when we determine that God's work is someone else's job. And maybe there's a next step for you here. Lean into what the Spirit is speaking to you today about being equipped. Maybe it's time for you to start serving a church, not just consuming Sunday messages. Maybe it's time for you to get involved in Christian community instead of seeing things from the outside and feeling lonely. The fullness of Christ is available to you here through the church. That is through us together. If that's you today, I encourage you to come speak to one of our campus pastors at the end or head to the next steps table come see me we want to make sure that you're equipped the final warning i have to share with you today is that the church stops being the church when we replace our confession with a concession the church stops being the church when we replace our confession with a concession we see evidence of this in churches and denominational movements they follow the culture they replace their exclusive confession of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life with a concession to please the culture. And what's the result? They have dwindling numbers. Their churches stand empty and their buildings are literally being turned into mosques and condos. Sad. If we as a church, we lose our confession, if we give up our sure footing, our sure foundation, if we lose our testimony, and relinquish Jesus' lordship over our lives and our movement, we stop being the church. Let's be clear, I'm, I'm not calling out any specific churches right now. I just, I hope you, like me, have a deep love for the local church. I know I've given my life for the service of the local church, but I'm reminded in the book of Revelation where Jesus warns the church, if they don't repent, if they don't hold fast, he would take away their lampstand, their light. Our light, it's the reason why we shine is because of our confession in Jesus. We confess Jesus, we confess the word of truth that we find in the scriptures and we hold on to this confession and we will not bow down to the tides of culture just to stay relevant or just to please people or be favored in their eyes. We hold fast to the truth so that our light continues to shine. We will not let our confession become a concession. And through our confession of Jesus, get this, he will continue to build us and the people around us because we are 
the church. We are the church, my friends, and the gates of Hades will not prevail over it. We're going to sing a song. We sang that song, there's a king seated among us. There is a name who reigns above all others. That's our confession. That's the same confession that Peter made with Jesus. It's the same confession that Peter made in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of the religious leaders in Acts chapter 4. There's no other name than King Jesus. So would you submit your life today to King Jesus, the one who leads you, the spirit who guides you, the father who loves you? God loves you so much. I want to pray for you today. Maybe you want to close your eyes, no looking around. I want to give two calls to action today. Number one is, I just sense that God is calling us once again to be the church. The church is not just a building. It's not just a Sunday activity. The church is Jesus' plan A to reach the world. And there's someone here today that is sensing that you need to shift from consuming church to being part of the community of the church. And if that's you today, I want to pray for you. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I'm not here to give you a guilt trip. There's just fullness and abundance of life for you as you enter into the life of the church. So if that's you, I want to pray for you. Lord Jesus, God, I thank you that your spirit moves in our hearts and in our minds. Your spirit gives us peace. God, your spirit directs us and it convicts our hearts. It brings truth to us. So Lord, for the person here today who's been an onlooker of church, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give them the strength to go all in on this community. God, would you give them the strength to follow you with their whole life, to confess that you're Lord of their life. God, I pray that you would take away the fear of our salvation that the the culture around us has placed in us. But Lord, would you bring back the joy of our salvation? We need you, Jesus. We are so far gone without you, Jesus. You are our savior. You are the Messiah, the one who reigns in heaven. Have your way in us today, Jesus. And maybe you've, the second call is just, I have a sense that there are people here who aren't accessing his fullness. Jesus offers us an abundant life. His desire for us is to attain maturity in our faith. And maybe there's something holding you back in your faith today. Maybe it's, maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a hurt or a hang up. Something you got in your life that's just dragging you down. And today, Jesus desires for you to access his fullness. If that's you today, I want to pray for you. Jesus, we pray your freedom over my friends today. God, would you bring them into perfect community with you? As we confess our sins, Lord, you are faithful to forgive. So Lord, forgive us where we've sinned. Forgive us where we've gone wrong. And Jesus, bring us back on to your plan and your purpose for our lives. It is a good and perfect plan. Your purpose is good for us. You love us. I pray against the work of the enemy that would take away the seed of faith in someone here today. And Lord Jesus, I pray that your spirit would 
pour blessing of fullness and abundance into our lives today. We thank you that you can do this, Lord Jesus. We trust you to do this. We need you, Jesus. Have your way among us. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you have placed us as the church here in the West Shore to reach your people. We love you, Lord Jesus. Would you have your way among my friends here today? In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet and we're gonna sing that. We, there is a king seated among us.